Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Laura Bennett. This season, we're focusing on the New York comedy club and cultural institution Comedy Cellar, which was founded in 1982 and has since been the starting ground for comedians like Chris Rock and Jon Stewart and Sarah Silverman and many, many others. This week, I'm talking to Steve Fabricant, better known in the world of the Comedy Cellar as Outside Steve. Here were the things I knew about Outside Steve before I interviewed him. His name was Steve, and his job at the cellar involved standing outside it. I'm tempted to leave his intro at that, but I will say that his miscellaneous duties include deciding who out of all the people waiting in line for a show gets to sit in the front row, and I got a big kick out of the details of how he makes those calls. Once again, we're at the Olive Tree Cafe next door to the cellar, which is functionally the club's backstage, in that it's where all the comedians hang out before and after shows. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Steve Fabricant. They call me Outside Steve. I work at the Comedy Cellar. I'm the host here. So I've heard a lot about the famous Outside Steve. Why do they call you that? Years ago, I had a roommate, Kurt Metzger. is a very funny comic. He lives in L.A. now. And uh, I think it was like maybe seven or eight years ago, there was about six Steves that worked at the Comedy Cellar. One guy in the kitchen and a couple of waiters and a bartender. So he came in here looking for me and he said, where's Steve? And of course... The person he was talking to said, which one? And he said, uh, outside, Steve. And uh, kind of stuck. But are you stationed outside? <laughs> gotcha, Esty. Esty, the booker at the Comedy Cellar, just walked by and did a big, like, throat-slitting movement. <laughs> um, so, I wish we had that on camera, but unfortunately we're on audio. It was so, fun. are you stationed outside? Is that part of why you're calling? I, I spend at least half my time outside checking in customers' reservations and uh, making sure we gaggle the people into the room before each show. And uh, it's not as easy as it sounds because we have three shows a night and uh, it's me and one security guard. And are you here every night? I'm here Sunday through Thursdays. So, what do you have to do exactly? There's, I've been out here when the line is forming and it's huge. It's like... Uh, no, I'm called it Beatlemania. It does feel like that a lot tonight. Yeah, I mean, it's very, it's a very simple job that's really difficult to do because uh, you're, you're trying to get 120 people into a tiny basement while other people are leaving the show. And because of the popularity of the Comedy Cellar, we're getting people from all over the world, and it's very just getting to, to say their name on the reservation is, is a hassle a lot of times. <laughs> so what's a hassle about it? Because you have to figure out how to pronounce it? They don't speak English. Right. Uh, which always baffled me. You know, they're seeing a show, a comedy show in English, and uh, if they don't understand the colloquialisms and sarcasm, you know, what are they doing there? So you're reading their names, you're checking off their names. Yeah, and uh, is that just I, oh, and, and then I assigned a seat for them, very specific seat. We, I have to put people in uh, in the room like a jigsaw puzzle. How do you choose who gets a seat? Where do you size someone up? And you're like, that guy looks loud. Oh well, sometimes if I think they're going to be a problem, I'll seat them closer to the front door. So we can get them out quicker, just in case. But usually it's about the size of the human being because it's a very tight huh. room. It's very uncomfortable. We get a lot of complaints about how uncomfortable the room is. And uh, we have a few seats that are a little more generous. 
I did not know there was so much strategy involved. There is. It's not, it's not easy. There's actually several different things you have to look for to get them in the room. And then, inevitably, they go downstairs and they're not happy with their seat. So what do people complain about? They're like scared to be too close to the stage, but they don't want to be too far away from the stage? Um, I give away the front row first because, you know, that's the most important. You, you want right. to see at the center of the room first, so just in case it's not sold out, which never is anymore. And also, I mean, are those the people the comics engage with sometimes? If somebody's wearing a funny hat and glasses, I don't want to put them in the front row. The show's not about them. And often they think that it is about them. Right. But, uh, so you see someone in funny hat and glasses, you're like, that person wants to be in the front row. I'm not doing it. Exactly. <laughs> and then maybe they'll be upset about it or you know, complain. So how do you choose the people who go in the front row? I, I like to put like a nice couple, you know, a married couple or boyfriend, girlfriend. A lot of times it's fun to put somebody maybe who's on a first date or it looks like they might be on a first date. I, What's I, fun I, about that? Just so they can get razzed? The most important thing is that they're well behaved. <laughs> right. And they shut true. up and they listen and they enjoy the show. But have you ever put someone in the front row who was just so obnoxious and like heckling the comedians? Of course, or, yeah. You can't really spot those people when they're waiting in line. Here's the thing. We, we don't allow drunk people in. And we don't want you to get drunk when you're in the room. But sometimes people get drunk as the show progresses. And we'll have the waitress go over and say, excuse me, you know, you have to keep it down. And we give them one or two warnings. And then we get the security guy and we bring him into the hallway so and we talk to him. you don't think of yourself as a bouncer at all? No, no. Look at me. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I'm an average-sized man. But, uh, you know, if it really hits the fan, I, I get the big guy. Yeah. Yeah. So is the big guy outside with you checking people in? Uh, he is. It's very important. It's a lot of crazy people out here. This is uh, Greenwich Village, and, uh, you know, we have to deal with a lot of crazy people, a lot of homeless people, a lot of drunk people. And uh, Are they trying to get into the cellar? Some of them, but, uh, you know, you have to have a reservation. And if you don't have one, then we could say, you know, we're sold out or, you know, a polite way of saying that you're not coming in. What is the worst weather you've ever had to be outside Steve in? Well, you know, it gets cold in New York City. But uh, we try to come prepared. I wear some long johns and uh, a few layers, the warmest coat I could find. And uh, you guts it out, you know. It gets so cold you can't even move your, your fingers to write. And it gets so cold that the ink in your pen dries up. I, I figured out that if I invest in a bunch of Sharpie magic marker pens, they don't dry out as easily in the cold weather. Very smart. Yeah. What happens on a night when, well, I know when you get the really big guys here, like, say, Seinfeld, he's not usually on the marquee or whatever. No, never, field. never. But what happens when you have someone who's, like, pretty famous on the sign? Is it just bedlam? Uh, it happens. It's usually, you know, when they get too famous, we don't like to put their names on the sign. Right. We can only hold X amount of people in the room, so it'd be a real problem if a thousand people showed up to see Aziz or Louie or whoever. It's the guys who are up and coming, and they become kind of famous really quickly. Uh, Hassan Minaj, he did that, what was it, the correspondence dinner. Right. And he blew up. Right. And Michelle Wolf also, actually, after the card. Yeah, she got famous really fast. And then, like, and then, like, a week after, you know, people are, like, scratching to get in. So then you take them off the sign? Uh, we'll take them off the sign. or Michelle you know. Wolf I still see on there from time to time. She seems like a level of fame where you can see the rationale for putting her on there, but it's almost too much. Right, but when Hassan Minaj got really hot it was really difficult to you know everybody was trying to see him all of a sudden and like i'm like oh okay he's famous now right and i would say i'm like hey what happened to you you're famous now and he's like yeah well he's like yes you're right yeah, I am yes i am i'm uh -huh. i'm huge yeah <laughs> he's a good guy
Do you get to listen to the comedy, or do you stay outside all night? No, no. I, I'm only there for the check-ins. I mean, I'm, your name I'm is inside Steve. Steve. <laughs> I'm inside <laughs> Steve. <laughs> Five or six years ago, Amy Schumer was at the Emmys for her uh, show Inside Amy Schumer, and we were watching her on television live at the comedian's table, and uh, a lot of her really close friends were there, like Rachel Feinstein and Nikki Glaser. And Nikki had the idea to take a picture of everyone uh, watching Amy at the Emmys real time while she was there. And uh, she took a picture of all of us. There had to be 10 or 12 people in the picture. And very quickly thereafter, Amy texted and said, what is outside Steve doing inside? <laughs> That's so good. That, I mean, I had the same question as soon as you walked in the store. I was like, what is outside Steve doing inside? Yeah, I really shouldn't be here. <laughs> All right, so when do you become inside Steve? After you check everybody in and then you... Yeah, and I will listen. You can't possibly listen to the same guys night after night after night. I do a lot. And, you know, when it comes to the point where, you know, subconsciously I've learned every joke and bit that every comic does, it gets a little monotonous. So, uh, you know, there are other things to do here, but, like... I do enjoy stand-up comedy, but there does come a point, I've been doing this for years, and there does come a point where you kind of get a little jaded by well, the jokes. So are there are jokes that you just know verbatim that you've heard so many times? Sure, yeah. Can you remember one off the top of your head? Like, what is the joke you think you've heard the most times from some specific comedian? Well, it's not about the joke I've heard the most times. You know, you have your favorites. Uh-huh. Anyone that knows me knows I'm a huge David Tell fan. I think. He's yeah, the, he was just outside here. He was just, yeah. And, uh, you know, we've established a friendship over the years that I really value. And to me, uh, he's just the funniest man alive. He's the funniest man of my generation, the guy, uh, the most original guy in the world. So and you don't get tired of hearing his stuff? My he's dad. the one and only guy I never, ever, ever get tired of hearing. And he's usually at the end of the night. So, like, it's kind of like, you know, I'll have a drink and I'll listen to David Tell, my favorite comic. And then after that, I go home. Not a bad life. It's not a bad life. But, you know, he, he never gets tiresome. He could even do the same bit, you know, that he's working on. And I enjoy the process that he goes through to, to improve like the joke. It. So yeah. it's, it's really interesting to see huh. that process from such a creative guy, you know. So when you go inside, when you transform it inside, Steve, are you watching the room to make sure no one's misbehaving? Or what do you think of as your job once it's, you're inside? It's just amazing how many things can go wrong in one night. You know, we serve alcohol here. We're dealing with a lot of people in a tight space. And there are problems that come up from, uh, you know, waitresses with problems with people talking. Did you ever get into, like, our cell phone policy here? I have heard about that. So now you bag them at the door, right? You don't let them. We've always been very strict on cell phones, not to take them out of your pockets or purses. And and, uh, you can never take pictures or record or write things down. But we've taken it a step further, and that's to put phones in bags now. And what inspired you to take it a step further? Was it the Louis stuff or was it some other catalyst? Well, it was Noam's decision to do it. I think it came from either, originally we got strict because of Chris Rock, but I think it was because of Dave Chappelle. He came in one night and he's like, I'd really like to open up to you guys, but I, I can't risk it with, with the cell phones. Huh. And Dave was one of the first guys, I believe, to use these yonder bags to seal up the bags in the big shows when he used to do uh, Radio City. He does a, a bunch of shows every year. And uh, he would, you know, a few thousand phones sealed up in a bag, and he had carte blanche to, to say whatever he wanted. Do people get mad when you ask them to hand over their phones? People have been pretty uh, good about it. You know, the biggest complaint is, oh, I've never turned off my phone before. Or, like, this is weird. And they're afraid that we're going to take the bags. But that's not true. We, we seal it in a plastic bag. 
We put all the phones in one, one little bag for the party. They keep it with them. And if they tear it open, it'll be obvious. And, uh, you know, we could throw them out at that point. Ah, that makes yeah. sense. So what is the worst behaved customer you've ever encountered? Over the years, we've, we've had fights here. Um, like over what? Between the comedians and the people? Yeah, we had a comic. I don't know if I should mention his name, but he was being heckled by this drunk woman that was with her husband, then husband. I believe they got divorced. Were they in the front row? No, no, they were just sitting there. She just was a little drunk and she wouldn't shut up. And the comics, you know, said, you're a bitch or something. And when he got off stage, the husband fought for her honor and took a swing at him. Outside or inside? Inside the club. Oh, man. It was a very large comedian. And uh, he hit back and really, and hurt him. So, first of all, what was your role in that? Did you get Well, I had a very important role in that (laughs) Uh because I was very close with this comedian and my first job is to protect the place you know the place comes first that's one of my jobs and this guy was threatening to call the police and this and that and he, he said he did call the police and he was threatening us and we're gonna sue you so I called the police before he had a chance to call very, the police very good strategy and uh, I've been in this neighborhood for a long time and I, I know most of the police in this precinct and my police got here before his police he did hit the comic first and he was arrested and, wow. sp- and spent the weekend in, in jail. And all the while having been hit in the face pretty badly? He, he got beat up, but the comic got punched and it hit his ear and almost popped his eardrum and he went to yeah. the emergency room. He's okay, but it was That's a big... high drama. It was a lot of drama, you know? Yeah. This is comedy, you know? I wasn't sure if you got in the middle of it or... There's been other fights where I've been in the middle of it. Yeah? I'm not a fighter by any means. And, uh, you know, I've been in the middle of some brawls ending up on the ground or whatever, but I've been okay. So just to rewind a little bit, how did you get started here? Noam is a very, very old friend of mine. He was roommates with my brother Don in college at Tufts University. And when I was still in high school, I used to go up and visit them. And uh, Noam has just been not only a best friend, but like a really a brother to me and, and my other brothers and part of my family. And I've always been kind of a part of his family. Was Noam the same in college as he is now? No, I I, th- I think Noam was a little more low-key in college. He stayed home a lot, I think, when he was in college, you know. It's not like he was studying, but, uh, you know, I don't remember him as outgoing as he is now. What is he like as a boss? He's tough but fair. He's very, the most reasonable, rational person, smartest guy I've ever met. He's just, you know, he's just always been in my life. He's always been a mentor to me in a lot of ways. So you met him visiting your brother in college, and then how did you end up with the job here? After I graduated college, I came back to New York. They were in Boston. I went to school in Boston, and uh, I had a day job working on uh, a small firm on Wall Street, and uh, I really had nothing to do on the weekends. What were you doing at the firm on Wall Street? I was a junior stockbroker for a company. Sounds pretty different. I was studying for the Series 7 and all those little tests and everything. This is... A long time ago, before the first crash. And Did you like that job? I liked it because I was doing very well at it. And then uh, there was a huge dip in the market, almost like a, a little crash. And uh, I lost a lot of money in a very short period of time. And it got very stressful. My father had been a career Wall Street financial guy his whole career. And uh, I, I was kind of following in his footsteps. And it just wasn't for me. It was very stressful. It was very boring and very, you know, being in a cubicle or on the phone all day was just very depressing to me. Did you grow up in New York? I grew up in New Jersey, Bergen County, New Jersey. Were you a comedy fan when you were growing up? I was a comedy fan, average, like anyone else. I really didn't know much about it. I I used to watch uh, 
the Ha channel on Comedy Central back in the day. And so I knew a lot of the faces just because I enjoyed watching it very casually. And when I first came here, I met some of the guys I saw on television, like uh, Colin Quinn. You know, I knew him from MTV back in the day on, on that show, Remote Control and uh, Ray Romano. Did you meet them on like your first day working here or how soon? Well, I, I used to come in and out here sometimes just to hang out because I knew Noam. And Noam said, you know, why don't you uh, bartend or wait tables or something? This is when Noam on the Cafe Wa next door. And you're still stockbroking at that point? Yeah, I was doing that uh, five days a week, you know, from like eight in the morning to like five in the afternoon. But I wanted something to do and have more of an income because I was just starting out on the weekends. So he gave me a job on the weekends at the Cafe Wa, and I did that for a while, and I, I loved it. And so you were waiting tables? I was waiting tables. I bartended. I did that for a while, at least a year or two. Back then, the staff at the Cafe Wa would alternate with the somehow with the, the staff in the Olive Tree Comedy Cellar, because Gnome's father owned the Olive Tree Comedy Cellar back then. And uh, we would rotate. And once in a while, I would get a shift in the comedy cellar, and that was my favorite thing. So what did you like about it so much? It was the comedy. It was the comedians. And, you know, hanging out with a bunch of funny guys who did this for a living. And to me, that was entertainment. There wasn't a lot of money to be made. I wasn't making money here. There wasn't a lot of people coming to the shows back then. It was actually so dead that Manny, Nome's father, would put the waitresses in the seats of the audience to make it look busier than it was. Oh, my God. It's amazing. Yeah. We've come a long way since then, but it's really amazing to look back on how, like, where we came from. So, do you remember the guys who were performing back then when you were just starting out? Like, who were the comedians you were really psyched to see when you were a young, stockbroking waiter at the Comedy Cellar? And what years would you say this was? 1996, 7, around that time. Of course, Colin Quinn, you know. He was probably one of the biggest celebrities here at the time that I remember. You know, I've heard that Paul Reiser used to come here before he, he blew up and, and all those guys. I, I, that was before my time. But for me, it was Colin Quinn, Ray Romano. A lot of these people weren't even famous yet. Ray Romano wasn't famous yet. Dave Chappelle wasn't famous yet. David Tell wasn't famous yet. On and on and on. Would they acknowledge you, these guys? Or were you just kind of in the background? No, no. They were they were my level, you know? They were really nothing special. But they were all, like, really nice guys. I would hang out with them. And what was that like, hanging out with them? Would you guys sit up here at the Olive Tree Cafe? Uh, Yeah, well... Noam's father was really into political debating. He was really interested in their perspectives on things because they're so honest about their opinions. And of course, Noam has followed in his father's footsteps because this place really was like one of those old school village places where people not only, you know, discuss the day's politics, but also, you know, hang out and play chess and play, you know, music. And it was a very lively time back then. And, you know, with a rich history dating back to the 60s with uh, Bob Dylan and, and Jimi Hendrix playing at the Cafe Wa. Of course, that was before Noam took over the Cafe Wap. So how did you morph from that young waiter into outside Steve? A few years later, I quit the Wall Street thing. I couldn't take it anymore. I didn't feel satisfied with it. I felt like, you know, this was my family. I hung out with these people. I loved to be around them all the time. It was hanging out every day. It was fun. It was interesting. And for the first time since I was probably in college, I felt like I fit in somewhere. With the waitresses and the bartenders, it was just a, a group of people that... I enjoyed it being with all the time. I felt like they were my family. So when you quit your job, you knew you were going to try to come work here full time? I, I guess full time. Uh, I don't know. At the time, it was maybe like 30, 35 hours a week, maybe three or four days a week, that kind of thing. Noam was having a problem with his lease. I think it was going to be up at the Cafe Wa, maybe 1999-ish, and decided to buy the Fat Black Pussycat around the corner on West 3rd Street. You know, it was a, a staple bar on the in the village, and he took it over and he improved it and made it better and classed the place up a bit 
and then decided to turn the basement into another club venue, music venue. Originally, he wanted to do that because he thought he was going to lose the lease on the Cafe Oa at the time, and he wanted to be in position to have another venue so he could bring his band over there. And uh, it was just a nothing basement. And his friend George, who does construction, took over the task of renovating the whole place. And I had nothing to do, and I helped with the construction of building the Village Underground, which, by the way, I came up with that name. Did you really? Yeah. No one might argue that fact. He was looking for names, and I said, what about the Velvet Underground after Lou Reed's band? And, and he said, well, we can't use that name. I'm like, well, what about the Village Underground? And he said, no, nah, it's too long. And then months later, he came back. I'm like, so what are you going to call it? And he goes, um, the Village Underground. Like, I had this great idea. Yeah. I'm like, really? Okay. <laughs> Whatever. That's quite a claim to fame. So what I'm getting around to is he needed a manager for the Fat Black Pussycat and the new Village Underground. And I was like pretty much running the whole show by myself for a few years. I lived, breathed, and slept there, literally. So how did you become the guy who mans the door here at the cellar? Well, I kind of got burnt out at the Village Underground. So uh, at that point, it was after 9-11, and I, I just kind of had it. I needed a break from New York. And I, I moved to Florida, and I stayed in Florida for a few years. What were you doing when you were there? I sold cars. Wow, you've done it all. Yeah. I figured I'd stay in sales, and I kind of enjoyed it. And uh, I really missed the fast-paced life of Manhattan and being in the city and being around a multicultural situation that I was used to. But it was nice to have the slow pace of Florida for a while. I just wanted to be back in New York. I, I didn't know what I was going to do. So, Did you ask Nam to give you a job? I didn't ask. The guy who did my job before I came back, kind of got burnt out. And Ava, who's partners with Noam at the time, do you know who Ava is? Ah, is that his uh, dad's wife? Exactly. Well, yeah. She said, listen, uh, Hatam is leaving and we need a guy to do this. And I'm like, all right. And uh, a two or three week stint turned out to be eight or nine years. So what was your first day in that job like? Do you remember it? Was it overwhelming? Not at all. We, the you know, probably not as crazy the, the club then. was successful, not as successful as it is now. We only had two shows, not three. And there really wasn't much to do. I just check in the show and hang out really most of the night after that. And then all of a sudden, I kind of stayed there. You know, months turned into years and uh, the place became more and more popular. And uh, then comes along Louis C.K. with his TV show. And then the place went to the next level. So the Louis C.K. reference is that the cellar was in the opening credits of Louis, right? So it elevated right. to even more prominence. He would use a lot of the comedians from the cellar that he was friends with, and he would shoot literally in the comedy cellar. And um, I'm the guy in the opening credits that he shakes hands with when yeah. he comes in in the intro. How famous did you become after that? Well, I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't <laughs> say famous. I mean, the, the truth is I, I didn't even know they were filming that. It was a really? very low-key thing. To sign a he walked down, I shook his hand, and there was a camera behind him. I'm like, oh, I got out of the way. Do you ever and get it, recognized on the street from and, that? And it's very camera? funny because uh, you know, I'm in it for literally less than a second. And after that show hit its peak in popularity, people would recognize me all the time. But I had to be standing exactly <laughs> there. right in front of the stairs in front of the comedy cellar. If I if I move two centimeters, you know, towards Mamoons. Nothing, but like, and it was nonstop. People wanted to, if you go on YouTube, people wanted to reenact that scene and, you know, reshoot like their version of the Louis intro. And if I did get recognized, it was just because I work at the Comedy Cellar. It wasn't really because of the, the Louis intro. That is amazing. Yeah. I looked you up on IMDb, I got to admit, and I saw that you were in a movie with Robert De Niro. Is that true? Yeah, that's actually true. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was called The Comedian. 
And um, they asked me to be in a scene as myself outside Steve. And, uh, you know, Robert De Niro is like an idol of mine. He's in my favorite movie, The Godfather. You can ask anyone. I quote that movie daily. And um, they asked me to be uh, in front of the comedy cellar while Robert De Niro walks down the street. I shake his hand and I say, hey, good to see you. What's up, man? And that was my line. And uh, they closed the whole street off and the whole production crew. And uh, it was really, really exciting. Me and Robert De Niro, people go to acting school and dedicate their careers to have that kind of opportunity to be that close to Robert De Niro. And so I'm really excited, a very surreal situation. And uh, before we shot the scene, I turned to my friend and comedian, Dan Natterman. And I said, hey, Dan, I'm about to be in a scene with Robert De Niro. Would you mind taking a picture of me? He's like, yeah, sure. So he stands back behind the cameras and there's a lot of people and they close the street down. And we ran the scene at least a dozen times because the lighting has to be right or whatever. And, and each time I'm, I'm shaking Robert De Niro's hand, I'm saying my line and I, I'm pinching myself. I can't believe it. It's a surreal situation. Finally, after a, few, a couple of hours, really, you know, it's over. And I, I run over to Dan. I'm like, so did you get the picture? He goes, oh, man, I, I couldn't do it. The crew told me to stand aside, and I didn't really have a clear shot, and I couldn't do it. So I said to Dan, I'm like, Dan, that's okay. You can get it again the next time I'm in a scene with Robert De Niro. <laughs> yeah. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So if you saw Robert De Niro right now, would he be like, outside Steve? I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it. It was an honor for me just to, to be in the same street with him for a moment. Oh, here's another story. I was in uh, Crashing. You know, we have so many shows here. Right. Yeah, it's 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 like surreal. Like, you know, I'm a regular guy and I have an IMDb page. It's not right. I'm not an actor or never thought about doing anything like that. But uh, Well, you do get recognized if you're standing. Yeah. And plus, I have a very familiar face from just being in this neighborhood for so many years that uh, a lot of people say hello to me that I have no idea who they are. They asked me to do a scene in Crashing. The same thing outside Steve in front of the place. I'm, I'm standing with uh, Pete Holmes and his manager within the show. His name is Chicken Wing. And we have a banter. And there was an improv line. And I had a couple of scripted lines. And I thought I killed it. And I was really excited about it. And we, we filmed it about like seven or eight months before they aired it. And I told my family, my brothers, and my, my mother to watch it. And son of a bitch, they cut out my lines. Oh, I had a feeling that was coming. <laughs> yeah, and I was really upset. You know, I was in the scene, but the, you know, they took out my lines, and I knew I was gonna have to suffer with my older brothers making fun of me for that for the probably the rest of my life. Do you have people trying to take pictures with you? And uh, not so much anymore. Get but your signature? No, no, it wasn't that kind of. <laughs> it was just, that kind of it was just like, hey, you're the, you're the guy, you know. Yeah. 
That's the best kind of fame. That's when you know you've made it and people are like, you're the guy. Yeah, I've been around enough famous people here where I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy. <laughs> what do you mean by that? They all handle it differently. Yeah. But like I see it really, it's just an annoyance to a lot of them. They're conflicted because, you know, they want to be nice to their fans and people that appreciate them. And at the same time, you know, when you're Jerry Seinfeld, from the moment you leave your house, you're harassed just throughout your whole day with yeah. a picture or an autograph or a conversation that you don't want to have. And it's, uh, it's exasperating. I see what they go through. Tell me what you've seen working here well, in terms of how fame works. There, there are levels, you know. Michael Jackson and Elton John have, you know, that's a certain... I didn't know they were comedy seller guys. No, but my point is, is that... <laughs> Within this microcosm of the Comedy Cellar in Greenwich Village, you know, there are little tiny rock stars within this, you know what I mean? It's a few people. And even with a few people, it's crazy for them. What's the craziest thing you've seen in terms of a fan interaction? Just total harassment. They'll be drunk and they want to tell them something or, you know, I saw you six years ago in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and you bought me a drink from stage. And do you remember that? You know, like, really? So what would Jerry Seinfeld say if someone said that to him? Not so much Jerry, but... <laughs> I just like to imagine that. It's like, you know, they nod their head and smile and, you know, and try to get through it. You could see there's a little pain there, a little piece of their soul. That <laughs> and I feel, I feel bad for them. And sometimes I try to, you know, get between them for certain people. You know, get yeah, them gonna... to ease off a little bit because I see that they're uncomfortable. You know, I do the best I can, but, you know. But how do you do that? I was going to ask if you consider that part of your job to protect these guys. Yeah, well, we have the comedian's table in the back, and we try to keep people away from them when they get a little too close or a little too eager. You know, you know the look in their eye. When they're about to approach? When they're about to approach, or they do approach, and they just won't leave, or they... So what is the look in their eye? Just like, oh, my God, I... You know, it's Aziz Ansari. I see him on TV, and, oh, my God, there he is right in front of me. I, I can't believe it. Is that Jerry Seinfeld? Wow. You know, it's, it blows people's minds that they're this close to them. So you see that it's look surreal. from a mile away, and you're like, i got to get between that guy and this table. Yeah, and if it gets too much, we'll get the security. Thank God we have security. We need it. It comes in very useful a lot of the times. How has your job changed over the years? Obviously, this place has gotten a lot more popular. But in what yeah. sort of concrete ways has your job changed? Well, like I said, you know, we had a lot of empty seats 18, 20 years ago. And instead of trying to get people into the club, I spend, I spend most of my time literally trying to keep, you know, telling people we're sold out. There's not enough room. We have a standby line that we take and a list that we make. And we try to be fair and fill in the seats of the reservations that don't show up. We know a certain percentage won't show up. And we try to accommodate everyone. No one even open up the second club around the corner. And sometimes all the clubs are just completely sold out and there's really nowhere to go. And people come here from all over the world, all over the city, all over the United States. And they didn't know they had to make reservations. And they're like, I hear this every day. Uh, yesterday, these three people, we came here all the way from Kuwait. And I'm like, really? You came here all the way from Kuwait to come here? And you didn't make a reservation? <laughs> What'd they say? You know, they smile and go, yeah, I, I know they're kidding. And I'm like, well, you should have planned ahead then. Maybe. Oh, they didn't really come from Kuwait. They did come from Kuwait. Oh, wow. Sometimes they come with luggage right from the airport. So did you used to have to do the stuff that, you know, like the guys in Times Square do when they're like, comedy show, comedy show? We never really did that, that whole on-the-street flyer stuff, rounding up people. And there are other rooms on the street, actually, that do that. Since I've been here, never. I've never, we never handed out flyers or... Or had a guy say, hey, you know, I want to see a great show. So what is a typical day for you like now? What time do you wake up in the morning? Oh, wow. It depends on the day of the week. Like tonight's Thursday. This is a very long 
day and night. It just seems to go longer on Thursdays. Why Wednesdays does it go and Thursdays. Thursdays? I don't know. There's something about Wednesdays and Thursdays. I think of it as my college years, you know, when Thursday night was like the night to go out. I don't know about you. So there's something about not so much the bridge and tunnel people, but like the people that are from Manhattan or maybe the tourists that are already here. They like to stay out and have a few going late. And the shows are a little more casual, especially for our nasty show that starts at 1130. It's a little looser and, and it goes longer. How late will you be here tonight? I'll probably leave here around 3.30. The shows will be over around 2, 2.30. Ooh, it's late. Yeah, that's our cycle. Yeah, you know, we're used cycle. to it here. I know it's weird. So after the show, do you hang out at the comedian's table or what? what's the... Sometimes I do. Yeah. It depends who's sitting there, but uh, I enjoy talking to them and listening to them. And, you know, they're a great group of guys, and, you know, it's a very small community. It's, a, it's like a family. What do you like about hanging out with comedians specifically? Oh, I, I love their honesty. They're very honest. You can say anything you want in front of them. There's no judgment. You can argue with them. You can debate them. You, you know, you joke around with them, and it's just, it's just a very casual, loose setting where you could just be yourself and express yourself any way you want. You know, not like the real world these days, you know. It's comforting to have that. And a lot of these guys are really, really intelligent. And we just, from debating today's politics to, you know, talking about bits and jokes and what happened to them and how miserable their last road gig was or, you know. Is there a lot of workshopping bits at the table back there? Sure, How sure. does that go down? Especially the younger guys. They're hungrier and their creative juices seem to be flowing more than the older, more complacent comics. <laughs> and they take it very seriously. A lot of these guys sit together at another table and bounce stuff off each other, which I really appreciate them doing. You know, like, I think it's nice that they have a creative situation with like-minded people that, you know, they could try things off of, and that's nice. So you have, like, Seinfeld and Chappelle and, I guess, whoever else sitting there just hanging out, not uh, not scrambling to try out new material, just uh, chilling, and then you have Well, those guys are pros, and they do, of course they have new material, but they don't sit around, like, they're not, they're not hungry to, uh, you know, get the next golden bit that they could try out. You know, for them, that's everything. For these young guys, they, that'll make their day. And to try it out, a new idea, and it works, you know, there's nothing better for them. I feel like I asked this of everybody who I've talked to here who's not actually a comedian, but would you ever do comedy? No. No. I mean, I, number one, I don't have that, that hunger. I don't think I'm that funny. Some of my friends think I'm interesting in a way, but like, I'm, I don't have the courage to be on stage like that and dedicate my life to that kind of lifestyle. And uh, I don't like attention, believe it or not. <laughs> do you ever think, all right, if I were to do comedy, do you have like a set that you would do? Have you written that in your head? No, I, I've had fleeting thoughts of funny ideas. And of course, Can you tell I would. one right now? No, um, but I, I have run them by some of the comics and they're very honest and they'll usually tell me it's horrible and you know, don't ever try this. You stink and get out of the business. And, you know, that's how we talk to each other. But <laughs> how do you take that? With a grain of salt. How else can you take <laughs> like, it? I don't believe you. I love these guys. Yeah. I, you know, they could say whatever they want. Well, we're so happy we dragged you onto this podcast. Well, thank you very much. That's it for this episode of Working. Thanks for listening. Again, I'm your host, Laura Bennett. If you liked the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions or comments, you can write to us at working at slate.com. Working is produced by Jessamine Molly. Special thanks to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. Come back next week for another episode on New York's Comedy Cellar. <laughs>